death when suddenly there is a delay. A delay, not any delay, but a delay that involves a destitute woman. And so I want you to take note of the contrast as we meet this destitute woman. Almost as soon as we are introduced to Jairus, this nameless woman appears out of nowhere. Now, what do we know? Well, we know some sad things about her condition. First, we see that she was suffering. Look at verse 25. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. The word for discharge is flowing, which shows that she was hemorrhaging no doubt, suffering from anemia. Verse 26 says that she had suffered much under many physicians. Dr. Luke, in his account of uh, his summary of her situation, says she could not be healed by anyone. By the way, doctors and nurses, they live under a lot of pressure these days, medical people. And I'm thankful for all of you that, that serve in the medical profession. Back in Jesus' day, a, a doctor wasn't necessarily as skilled as they are today. Some of them were even involved in sorcery more than sciences. And they would experiment with all kinds of concoctions, mixing them together and, and then giving them to people, uh, charging them large sums of money with no guarantee that there would be any healing to come. And so she was suffering. She was spiritually unclean. In Leviticus 15, it tells us that a discharge of blood would have made her unclean and unable to gather with God's people for worship. It would make her unclean to enter into the marketplace to do any kind of trade. It would make her unclean to have social interaction with people. And so in addition then anyone who came in contact with her, who touched her, would be considered unclean as well. And so as a result, this woman would have been shunned and relegated to a lonely and empty life. She was suffering. She was spiritually unclean. She, we learn, had spent all of her money. In verse 26, it says that she was broke. It says no better, but rather grew worse. Her disease had left her destitute. She had tried everything and spent all that she had. I wonder if you can relate to that at all. Have you ever felt like you've done everything you know to do and it just seems like still there's no help in sight? That's not a good place to be, is it? It's not a good feeling to have, but that's where this woman is at. But I want you to also see she is seeking help. Look at verse 27. She had heard reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. The word heard means to hear with attention. The healing power of Jesus had given her hope that there was some way that she was going to reach him. But she knew it wasn't going to be face to face. This woman with no name. She had too much shame to do that. The best that she could hope for was a secret healing. And so verse 28 reveals to us her thinking as she said these words to herself over and over. If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. I want you to just kind of imagine her mindset, her heartbeat. Can you imagine that? As she quietly winds her way through that thick crowd, trying to get to close to Jesus, if I touch him, just the hem of his garment, I will be made well. Luke tells us that she grabbed onto the fringe of his cloak. 
Now, let's just talk for a moment before we go any further about her faith. The faith of this woman was just beginning. It's clear that, that she had some superstition attached to her faith. Her theology certainly is not very well developed. But to her credit, she brought as much of herself as she could to Jesus. Imperfect faith in a perfect Savior will always accomplish much. And I want us to remember that. Our faith is an imperfect faith, but it is in a perfect Savior. I'm reminded of what Jesus said one time when he said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This woman had a childlike faith. It was not perfect. It was not fully formed, but it was simple and it was hopeful. And so as soon as she touched his garments, in verse 29, it tells us what happened. And immediately, there's Mark's favorite word, immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. I love how this happened immediately, and she could tell that she was better. I wonder then if she tried to shrink back, kind of disappear into the crowd, because she's still filled with shame, even though she's been healed. But then verse 30 tells us what happened. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? Who touched my garments? That is the question of Jesus. That reminds me, a number of years ago, I saw a title of a book, and it was entitled, Questions from the God Who Needs No Answers. Questions from the God Who Needs No Answers. Jesus knew exactly who touched him. But he asked the question for the woman's benefit. And I was thinking about, why does he do that? And I thought of a, a number of reasons. One, maybe to enable her to give her testimony of what Jesus had done. You know, belief is personal, but it at some point has to go public. By the way, that's one of the purposes of baptism. It gives us an opportunity to publicly, publicly identify with Jesus Christ. Jesus said in, in Luke 12, 8, And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. And so Jesus perhaps wants to enable her to give her testimony. I also think that Jesus wants to build her belief and fortify her faith. And so he calls out, who touched my garment? And then third, Jesus wants to show the crowd that this woman is now clean and should be accepted back into society. Her shame is now gone. Romans 12, 11. 10, 11. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. When we come to Jesus, shame is taken away. Well, I like how the disciples then, get, they get just a little bit sassy with Jesus here. You ever get sassy with, with the Lord at all? They say to him in verse 31, you see the crowd pressing around you, Lord, and yet you say, who touched me? doesn't compute for them, does it? This shows me once again that the, the disciples don't quite get everything yet, do they? I mean, what do they know? They're on uh, an important task. They are impatient with the Lord. They don't understand what's just happened. 
They're on their way to an important man's house, the synagogue ruler. And they have an important task for Jesus to carry out. We got places to go. Come on, Jesus. People to see, things to do. Let's get moving. You ever that way? I am. God, come on, let's get going. We can be a little bit impatient with God at times. Well, verse 32 describes Jesus' searching for, for this woman. It says, he looked around to see who had done it. Who touched me? Can you just picture the eyes of Jesus going over the crowd? Who? Who among you touched me? Oh my goodness. He's searching the crowd to find the woman. And in verse 33, it says that she came in fear and trembling. Fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. She just lets it all out. Jesus, here's what happened. Here's what I did. She's terrified because she knows that she should not have been in that crowd because of her uncleanness or impurity, much less touching the garment of the rabbi, Jesus. She made him unclean. She fears rejection again. After all, that has been her life experience. For 12 years, she has been rejected over and over and over again. And so that shame is overwhelming. And so she comes and she spills it out before Jesus. But I don't want you to miss what happens next. The man, remember that man? The man with some fame, he fell down before Jesus, didn't he? And now this woman, this woman filled with shame, she falls down as well. You see, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who we are, what position that we hold, it doesn't matter where we've come from or where we're going. Our posture before Christ must be one of broken humility and deep reverence. And that's both what this man and this woman show. You see, Jesus, he has come for anyone. For those with status and power, all the way to those steeped in brokenness and shame. All we have to do is respond. Now, verse 34 tells us that she wasn't just healed. You see, she was saved. Jesus said to her, daughter, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. First of all, I love that he calls her daughter. Why does he do that? He does that because she has just entered the family of God through faith. She goes from living with shame to having the name daughter of the king, just like that. For 12 terrible years, she has been a nobody. And now she's somebody. She is a daughter of the king. Jesus says it was her faith that made her well. Not something inherent in his clothing or in the touch. It was her faith that had made her well. The word well that's translated many times in the New Testament as saved. It's the same word we get our word salvation from. And so it means literally that, to be kept safe and sound. Your faith has made you safe and sound, daughter. And so she's told to go in shalom, in peace, and be healed of her disease. She was delivered from her sickness, and she's delivered from her sin. Well, so far we've met a desperate man, 
and we've met a destitute woman. And now let's just take a few moments to take a look at Jesus' next encounter. And that encounter is with a dead girl. There's no other way to say it. A dead girl. After calling this nameless woman daughter, we see in verse 35 that some messengers come from Jairus' house and report to him, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any longer? Do you see the contrast there? Here is a new daughter in Christ. And the messengers come and say, sorry, buddy, your daughter's dead. You might as well come on and leave the master alone. Can you imagine? Imagine what Jairus must have been thinking. If it weren't for the interruption from this ridiculous, unclean, destitute woman, Jesus could have already healed his precious little girl. This delay had caused the death of his girl. Why couldn't Jesus have just come back later if he had to deal with this filthy woman? After all, she'd been sick for 12 years. What would another 30 minutes matter? Can you imagine what's going on in his head and in his heart? Perhaps you've heard this saying, God is never late. He's seldom early. He's always on time. To which we might add, and he can always be trusted. And so here's a question for us to grapple with. Are you okay with God's divine delays in your life? Are you okay with it? Or are you going to lapse into negativity, into blame, into shaking your fist at God? You see, when God delays, it doesn't mean that he doesn't care. Rather, rather, He's got something else going on. He's weaving his ways and his will in such a way that perhaps the delay will result in greater glory for himself and greater faith for us. One of the great beloved passages of the New Testament is Romans 8, 28. And we know, we know that for those who love God, all things, all things, that means good, bad, or ugly. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. You see, delays are often part of God's divine design and interruptions are part of God's appointments for us. You know, I find it kind of comical as, uh, as I was Going over the, the message last night, Saturday night, I often come over here when it's very quiet, and I, I stand up here, and I preach this message to you. You're not here yet, but I preach it to you anyway. But I, I got to thinking, during the week when I was putting this message together, I, I thought about one day in particular, and I was interrupted, interrupted three times by people who wanted to have conversations with me, and I found myself getting a bit annoyed. After all, I got important things to do. I'm writing Sunday's sermon. But it's humbling to think about this. I realized that God had some appointments for me, and all three of those conversations were important conversations that I would have missed if I would have just got all irritated said, I don't have time for you. I love the tenderness in verse 36. You see, Jesus, he knows. He knows Jairus. 
He knows that Jairus is going to start falling apart at this news. Your daughter's dead. I mean, they just blurted out in front of God and everybody, right? How cruel is that? And what does Jesus answer to Jairus? Do not fear. Jairus, do not fear, only believe. And literally, in the original language, he's saying, keep on believing. Keep on believing, Jairus. Keep trusting in me. Stop fearing. Only be believing. That's what Jesus reminds Jairus. Jesus was calling him to hold on to the faith that he had originally. Even in the face of what seemed impossible, your daughter is dead. Give up. What good could come of that? Jesus then, he knows this man's hurt. What does he do? He thins out the crowd in verse 37. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. Now, it's important for us to understand some key elements of a a Middle Eastern funeral in the first century. There was always the tearing of clothes, There were often, especially for wealthy people like Jairus, hired professional mourners, and there would always be at least two flutes playing dirges. Funerals in the first century were filled with frantic weeping and wailing and loud hand clapping, not applause, but a way of mourning. So with that as background, let's imagine the scene that's laid out in verse 38. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. Can you see that picture? A precious little girl has just died. The family is devastated. The mourners have arrived. It's time for the culture to kick in. This is a terrible, terrible time. But I don't want you to miss the theological depth of what Jesus says next. Because he redefines death. In one sentence, he redefines death as a temporary condition for those who are in him. And when he had entered in, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. You see, for the believer... For the believer, death is literally that, only sleep. A temporary state preparing us for something better. Something far superior. And so when Jesus said she was sleeping, everyone started jeering at him. Luke tells us that they all knew that she was dead. Look at verse 40. And they laughed at him. That word for laugh, that's not the laugh of humor. When we think about laughing, no, it means to ridicule, to scorn, and deride. The laughter of one who feels superior. And it's in a tense meaning they kept on jeering at him. You dumb rabbi. You don't know anything. She's dead. Who are you to just show up and say she's asleep? We know she's dead. You're ridiculous. That's the attitude that Jesus faces. And you know, brothers and sisters, we shouldn't be surprised 
when sometimes some people in our life are going to laugh at us. They're going to make fun of our faith. You believe in some magical, mystical guy in the sky. Come on. What, are you stupid? Don't you believe in science and reality? People are going to ridicule your faith. If they jeered at Jesus, they'll do it to you. Notice that while the people are laughing, I love what Jesus does here next. It says he clears them out in verse 40. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. By by the way, that phrase, he put them outside. It's the very same word that Jesus, that was used of Jesus when he went in and cleared the temple of the money changers. Remember that story? When Jesus started flipping the tables and clearing out everybody? How dare you make my father's house a den of thieves? That's the attitude that Jesus uses here. When he clears the house. But then I like to picture the next little part there. Jesus I just picture him tenderly putting his arms around these two grieving parents. And he says, come with me. Come with me. And they go into the house. I want you to picture that. Devastated parents. Their only daughter has just died. Just 12 years old. Her whole life ahead of her. And this rabbi says, it's all right. Come with me. And then we see the tender spirit of of the Savior one more time in verse 41. Taking her, the little girl, by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. I love that picture of Jesus just gently taking her hand. Mark, he records the Aramaic phrase. It literally means, little lamb, little lamb, rise up. Isn't that a beautiful picture of Jesus? He cares about this little girl. He cares about these grieving parents. He cares about his disciples. They're watching this. Verse 42, and immediately, there's Mark's word again, immediately the girl got up and began walking. Mark tells us, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. Notice that she didn't need any physical help, no physical therapy. She walked around like a normal 12-year-old child would. And Mark tells us those who witnessed the miracle were literally astonished with great astonishment. This was a mind-blowing moment. Can you believe what we just saw? Can you picture Peter and James and John? Their mouths are hanging open and they're saying, what just happened here? Wow! And then, you know, Jesus is all about people. He's always about people. Always about the individual. Jesus cares for the crowds. He cares for his program and his plan. All His mission is vital. But he's always got time for people. May we have time for people as well. Jesus makes sure to give this family some privacy. He doesn't want any selfies taken, no paparazzi. Look at verse 43. And he strictly charged them that no one should know about this and told them to give her something to eat. I just want you to see that final tender touch. A miracle, an amazing miracle has brought her to life. And what does Jesus say? Get her some lunch because a meal 
going to help keep her alive. This shows that Jesus cares about our very deepest needs, our biggest problems. But he also cares about the simple things as well, like a missed meal. That's who our Lord is. And that's who he calls us to be. And so, folks, what do we do with these three unique encounters that Jesus had with a desperate man and a destitute woman and a, and a dead girl? How do these first century conversations and encounters impact us as 21st century followers of Jesus? Well, I want to, as we wrap this up, I want to encourage you in three very specific ways of thinking. Thinking about your life as you encounter a variety of people and situations and events. Because that's life, isn't it? Encountering people and situations and events. And so how do we think as believers? Number one, start seeing your interruptions as God's appointments. When things don't go as planned. Here's a suggestion. Say a quick prayer that goes something like this. God, help me not to be so irritated that I can see this as an appointment that you have for me. But if you just work that into your everyday interaction, every time you got irritated, every time you were delayed in some way, how about when the guy cuts you off on the ramp getting onto the freeway? God, is this an appointment for me to learn something? When somebody walks in on you and says, I need your attention now and you're focused on this, could it be God saying, hey, attention over here. I got an appointment for you. See your interruptions as God's appointments. You can do that at home. You can do that at work. You can do that with your neighbors. We live in a busy world and there are bound to be multiple interruptions. So begin to see them as opportunities and yes, even appointments. Second, identify a situation in which you need to stop fearing and start having faith. What did he say to Jairus? Don't fear, only believe. You can start right now today by thinking about what's going on in your life where you're fearing. Start having more faith. See your crisis or your fear or your anxiety as God's opportunity to go to work. I love this quote I came across from theologian A.W. Tozer. As God is exalted to the right place in our lives, a thousand problems are solved all at once. Isn't that great? When we put God where he belongs, all this stuff works out. And then finally, don't wait for a crisis. We've talked about how desperate times might call for desperate measures. How much better is it for us just to stay connected to Jesus all the time? So don't wait for a crisis before you commit yourself fully to Jesus. Reach out to him in faith and ask him to deliver you every day, all the time. This named man, Jairus, this unnamed woman, we won't learn her name until we get to heaven, but they had some things in common. They were both hopeless, but they were also both humble, and they knew where to go for help as they fell down at the feet of Jesus. 
And so folks, I just want to encourage all of us to stop trying to do it all on your own. When Jesus is waiting to be invited into your situation, Jesus is willing to receive us. Whether we are respected or rejected or somewhere in between. May God bless you today as you begin to think in some new ways as the king of the world invites you to be his son or his daughter. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these powerful reminders from the life of Jesus. Lord, we thank you that your word is is so powerful that we can read it 2,000 plus years later and be reminded that you are the same. The same God yesterday, today, and forever. The same God who walked in Galilee is the God who lives in our life. Father, you are the God who wants to be involved. You are the God who wants to change us. And you are the God that wants to bring us salvation. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, as a way to remember what Jesus has done for us. Our practice here at Gardenway Church is to share together in the Lord's Supper or the communion each week. We come at the invitation of Jesus. It is his family meal that he's invited us to. It's for his sons and daughters. One of the many things that we're called to do as we share in communion is to do some self-examination. And from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 and 28, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself and then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And so this morning, let's spend some time reflecting thanking and examining our lives. Jesus has done so much for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. So I encourage you to think on these things. And we're going to share together in the communion in just a moment. As the music plays, you are invited to make your way to one of the four tables. There's two here at the front, two at the back. You can take communion right at the table or you can